And welcome to A Slice of Medieval, where history meets historical fiction. I'm Derek Burks, best-selling author of historical fiction. And I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly, best-selling author of historical non-fiction. Today, we've got a little bit of a change of style. And it's my fault. Well, hopefully you'll enjoy it. <laughs> if it doesn't work, it's Sharon's fault. If it does yeah. work, it was a brilliant idea of mine. <laughs> right, fair enough. So on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, I saw a question asking who was the hardest done by in the Wars of the Roses. Henry VI was mentioned, Cecily Neville. Some people even felt sympathy for George of Clarence, which, to be honest, I can't see. But one person that was mentioned was Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. And they said that he'd done everything in his power to get Edward IV on the throne, but then been betrayed and sidelined once Edward was there. And I thought this was intriguing, and could it be true? So I thought we ought to look into this, because... I know Derek isn't a fan of Richard Neville, but I've been reading up around it to see whether or not it's actually true. And I think there's an argument to be made. But first, we need to look at who Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, was. And how did he become so powerful before 1459, Derek? That's actually quite a big question because his family, the Neville family, had been one of the dominant families in the north of England for many decades, perhaps even you could say several centuries. But at the start of the 15th century, there was quite a balance of power between the noble families in the north, principally between the Neville family and their rival Percy family. The Neville family had a lot of power in the, in the west and the Percy family in the east. Well, at the beginning of the century, there was a rebellion against the Lancastrian king, Henry IV, and the rebels were basically backed by the Percys, and the king was backed by the Nevilles, or at least principally by Ralph Neville, Earl of Westmoreland. And the outcome of that rebellion really determined the fortunes of the two families for the next century, or even, you could say, for all time, because the Nevilles rose to prominence and the Percys took a little bit of a nosedive in importance. Well, Ralph Neville, sorry, Derek, but Ralph Neville had just married um, Henry IV's sister as well, hadn't he? In the late, uh, in the 1390s, I think it was, he'd married yeah, Joan Bowden. That's right. The illegitimate then legitimised daughter of John of Gaunt. So she was Edward Henry IV's half-sister. So you see the familial link there with the Neville supporting Henry IV. And actually, it makes it, it's in their favour as well, because they can batter the purses at the same time as supporting their brother-in-law. Yes. Well, I mean, the story of Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, and how he became so powerful, is about three marriages. The first you've mentioned was his, his grandfather, Ralph, to uh, Joan Beaufort. And the second was his father's marriage, probably would have been the great marriage of the century uh, had it not been for, for Richard's own marriage. But his father, also called Richard Neville, married Alice Montague. And Alice Montague was the heir to the earldom of Salisbury. So Richard Neville's father became Earl of Salisbury mm. and gained an enormous amount of land, power, influence across the country, not just in the north, but in other areas. And then Richard Neville himself got an even bigger marriage. And his marriage to Anne Beauchamp gave him even more lands and, of course, Earldom of Warwick. So by these three marriages, the power of the Nevilles and Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick in particular, became enormous. They had extensive lands all over the place. They were married into virtually every other noble family. They were ridiculously powerful. So by 1459, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, was probably the most prominent nobleman, and he was also captain of Calais. Now, what some people might not know is that in this period in the 15th century, the only standing army for the crown in England actually wasn't in England. It was in Calais. 
Calais being one of the last English possessions in Europe. So he actually had an army, potentially had an army, which even the king didn't have. Nobody had an army that was permanently in place except the captain of Calais, and that was Warwick. So if you put together all the wealth and power that the family had, that Warwick had on his own, and add to that the fact that he was captain of Calais, he was an enormously powerful individual. He was also very popular, wasn't he? People liked when Warwick came to town because he spread his largesse. Yes. Everybody would make money out of Warwick and his retainers being there because they had the money to spend. They would spend it. Absolutely. The example was really set by Richard, Duke of York, who was his, his uncle. And Richard, Duke of York used to do very similar things. When he went somewhere, there was a big propaganda campaign. There was a big sort of here I am. And Richard Neville, I think, picked up on that and realised that popularity amongst the commons was an extra element of power. And he was a man of grand gestures, which also made him a sort of folk hero. He was a bit of a, a bit of a pirate as well at times. And again, in the in the common person's eye, here was a chap who got things done. Here was a guy who who didn't mess about, who didn't worry too much about the niceties of things. He just cut through the Gordian knot, as it were, and was therefore to be admired. So how much of Edward's success do you think was down to Warwick? Because I always think that Warwick probably overestimated himself. Well, yes, I'll put my cards on the table here. The biggest thing Warwick had was hubris. The biggest thing he had was his ego. He had an ego to die for, and sooner or later he would. But if you look at the, the nitty gritty, if you look at the practicality of it, how much was Warwick the kingmaker of Edward IV? I would suggest only in one respect. It was an important respect. It was the men and the money that Warwick could supply. That was something which he did contribute. Militarily, his reputation is much inflated. As you said, Edward was young. Mm. He, was, he was about 18 when he first went into battle for himself at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross, which he won. At the same time as Warwick was losing a battle. Well, basically, Warwick was making every mistake in the book, tactically, at Northampton, shortly after Edward had won this victory at Mortimer's Cross. Now, the, the contrast is considerable. Not only did Warwick lose the Battle of Northampton, he also lost possession of Henry VI. Mm. Henry VI was the anointed king in theory yeah. and possession of him meant you were acting lawfully because you were acting under the authority of the existing king. Because remember at that point, Edward was not necessarily going to kill Henry VI or harm him. Henry VI gave him some legitimacy. But once he lost possession of Henry VI, he was forced to basically become a traitor mm. and go for the throne. There was no alternative, really. So, And then if we come to Towton, obviously Towton is the key battle, very large battle. There's still a lot of doubt about exactly how it took place over what sort of time scale. But what is clear is that Warwick was wounded quite early on. Wasn't he wounded the day before at Ferry Bridge? Well, it, it depends which account you believe. There is a version of events that says that Ferry Bridge, quite a serious skirmish at Ferry Bridge, uh, which was which was the crossing of, I think, the River Eyre. Yeah. That is suggested by some to have been not the day before, but the same day as Towton, uh, because mm. it suggested that it makes more sense that they advanced from Ferry Bridge, which wasn't very far away, and the whole thing kicked off then. I don't happen to agree with that, but it's a version of events. But whichever way you look at it, if Warwick was wounded at Ferry Bridge, and he certainly was, I, I don't think there's much doubt about that, he wasn't really fit to lead much at Towton itself. And I, I must admit, I think it was Con Igledon who first rather sort of drew the picture for me of this image of the young Edward at Towton, tall, physically impressive knight, encased in the best possible armour money could buy, with a with a war hammer, a poleaxe, if you like, in each hand, mm. cracking the living daylights out of his opponents. On the battlefield, nobody else eclipsed Edward IV. Mm. Warwick was a great a great warrior. Yeah. A great soldier. I'm not sure he was a great tactician, but but Edward just seemed to have a knack for winning. Mm. But, but the example he showed on the battlefield meant that he gave courage to others. And I, would, I wouldn't say that Warwick didn't do that, but I think the fact is, at Towton, he was unable to play the sort of pivotal role that he might have otherwise played if he hadn't been wounded. He was there, but I'm not sure how important he was. Mm. 
So when you look at the purely military side of things, and, and that's obviously crucially important, I don't think Warwick contributed much at all to Edward's success. No, and you can imagine Edward going, look, I, I did Towton. I did it myself. I did Mortimer's Cross. You yeah, actually exactly. made it worse by losing at Northampton yeah. and losing the king. So you made it a bigger uphill struggle. Yeah, yeah. If you imagine a situation where uh, Queen Margaret was not with King Henry, so she didn't have the king with her, the power of the king's personality, the draw of the king's personality is enormous. And I think that's something that often the modern mind can't quite take in. But you see so many examples of this, that people were very reluctant to fight against Henry VI, even when they knew all his faults, even when he made so many mistakes. Yeah. Even when he appeared not to care, they still found it difficult to break their oath of allegiance to him. So the possession of Henry VI was vital. If you imagine a situation, therefore, where, where Edward actually had possession of Henry VI and might even have allowed him to, to carry on as king in a sort of puppet way, and Edward would then succeed him, which, of course, was, was the idea of the Act of Accord the previous year. It's obviously conjecture now, but bottom line, I think, is that Warwick did not put Edward IV on the throne. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I think Warwick um, overestimates himself in that respect. But he was a very powerful figure and a very influential figure. Yeah. And he did negotiate with European countries and things. So did did Edward need him? That's an interesting question, because Warwick obviously thought Edward needed him. But did Edward, once he'd become king, did Edward actually need Warwick's support? If Warwick had just retired, would anyone have noticed I don't think it was in Warwick's nature to retire. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I think Edward probably did need him. I remember Edward was uh, 19 mm. or so at the beginning of the reign, inexperienced. But it's easy to say, oh, he, he was only that age, he didn't know anything. Well, of course, he'd been brought up, he'd been raised as a prince, he'd been raised to succeed his father, Richard, Duke of York, when the assumption was that he would become king. So he was not just any youth. He was not just any nobleman. He was, he was prepared, in a sense, for kingship. Mm. So I think he did need Warwick. Warwick was a, was a bit older and significantly older, and he had a lot of experience, diplomatic experience, that, that Edward just didn't have. Having been captain of Calais, that gave him links to Burgundy, France and all the European countries, hadn't it? So he'd actually had this diplomatic experience as captain of Calais that he could actually pass on to Edward. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a tendency for uh, modern students of the period to fall for Warwick's own propaganda, as European rulers did at the time. Mm. Warwick dealt with European rulers, and they assumed, because he led them to believe, that he was the power behind the throne. Edward was king, but the real power lay with him. The decisions lay with him. Ah, so he was overrepresenting himself. Oh, definitely. No question about it. I mean, why wouldn't you if you were Warwick? I mean... That seems reasonable in a sense. Yeah. I understand why he did, but the reality is he wasn't king. Mm. If he'd been the man behind Henry the Sixth, that's a different ball game. <laughs> but Edward the Fourth knew his own mind, shall we say? Yeah. And was it healthy for Warwick to have so much power? Not really. If you look at previous reigns in the Middle Ages, the term over mighty subject is used on a number of occasions. Yeah. And Warwick was the overmightiest of overmighty subjects. He was a potential danger all the time. That's the problem. Yeah, but if Edward needed anything quickly, if he needed money, if he needed troops, who would he turn to? He'd have to turn to Warwick because he was the one who had everything on hand. Yes, and once he was king, what we should say in Warwick's favour is that the one who suppressed the ongoing revolts in the north up to about 1464 was Warwick. Mm. Warwick was the one who led that, who negotiated with the Scots, etc., etc. So when it came to suppressing the North, Warwick was the man who did it. And that is no mean achievement because that could have become a real problem for Edward IV. People have this idea that because Edward IV was a Yorkist, he was supported in the North. Totally untrue. He had very little support in the North at all. The support he had came through men like the Nevilles, yeah. who did have local support. I think Warwick did do things that Edward IV needed doing. But there seems to be a feeling, which I'm astonished at, that, that he didn't reward Warwick. He showered Warwick with rewards. He, he was still giving him lands when Warwick was actively working against him later on. 
Yeah. But at the same time, he was making Warwick look a fool because he was doing things behind Warwick's back and actually total opposite to what Warwick was doing. Like when Warwick was arranging the, the French marriage, he was going off marrying Elizabeth Woodville. When Warwick was arranging a treaty with France, he, Edward, was signing a treaty with Burgundy and not actually telling Warwick. You can understand why Warwick got a bit perturbed. Well, I think, I think Warwick was aware that Edward was negotiating with Burgundy, but he didn't agree with it. Mm. Warwick wanted a French alliance. He thought that was the best thing for the country and so on. There was a lot of hostility towards France. Uh, you know, recent history had not, had not uh, made France an ally exactly. And the King of France, Louis XI... Yeah. He's the one known as the spider, isn't the he? The spider, Got yes. a lot to answer He's for. not called the spider for nothing. <laughs> he, he is a totally untrustworthy person. Mm. Not that necessarily that was the reason Edward didn't want to make an alliance with him, but I think Edward just... I, I think it's often presented that Warwick was doing one thing and Edward was doing another all the way through those middle... Mm years of the 60s. But I don't think that was the case. I don't think uh, marrying Elizabeth Woodville, for example, was a deliberate snub to Warwick. No, I don't think Edward was thinking very over much other than I want to marry Elizabeth Woodville. Beyond that, he didn't seem to... I think he was thinking, I want to bed Elizabeth Woodville. <laughs> and if the only way I can do that is by marrying her, then, then that's probably what I'll do. Yeah. I don't think he was thinking, this is one in the eye for Warwick. I don't think that crossed his mind. No, and I do think him keeping it secret for four months was more embarrassment and trying to work out a way of getting out of it, maybe. Absolutely. Than yeah. actually deliberately keeping it from Warwick. Yes, I agree. Although there is also some doubt about the dates, isn't there? Mm. There's a possibility that they actually married secretly in August rather than May. Yeah, I think May's just that. It's May Day, isn't it? And that old tradition of being able to marry in yes. on May on May Day. They seem to, because nobody actually knows the date of the no. wedding, but they seem to have just established it as the 1st of May because that's romantic. <laughs> yes, I agree. I agree. I, I, I'm not sure that it wasn't in August. It could have been in August. And if that's the case, it makes quite a difference because mm. it means instead of keeping it secret for months, he kept a secret for a week, yeah. uh, which is not quite the same. But the fact that he kept it secret at all means mm. he knew exactly what the response to it would be. I mean, it is when you're the King of England, you're the prize catch of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every princess in Europe is available to you. Well, single princess in Europe is available to you. And you go and marry the daughter of a knight. In Edward IV's case, every princess in Europe is yeah. not a great respecter of marriage vows, or his or anybody else's. No. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, the argument is that, that Edward was smitten by Elizabeth Woodville. One view one view would say that you sort of enticed him and encouraged him, uh, which is possibly true. I don't think he needed much enticement. <laughs> but I think Edward did what he wanted to do. Yeah. He didn't do what somebody else wanted him to do normally. No. I think he knew that if the marriage stuck, then it would create ripples. Yeah. Whether he looked far enough ahead and realised that the size of Elizabeth Woodville's family would cause problems from other points of view in terms of having to improve their status, reward them because of the marriage. Whether he looked that far ahead, I don't know. But one thing I'm absolutely certain about is that Edward was a conciliator. Oh, yes. If there was any chance of making a deal with his enemies rather than fighting mm. him, he would. I don't think Warwick is of a similar way of working necessarily. No, that's true. And Edward always seemed to, I mean, he got bit more often than he didn't when he did do it. But yeah, he always seemed to want the peaceful way out. And um, I think it surprised him that nobody else did. <laughs> I think, yeah, he's almost out of his time in that respect. Yeah. And I think, yes, you're right. He, he did get bitten a couple of times by allowing one of his enemies by pardoning them and, and allowing them a degree of freedom. But it's something that, from the modern perspective, it's an admirable quality, really. Yeah. I think the Victorians thought it was a foolish thing to do, mm. but I rather admire him for that. And it worked sometimes. Didn't always work, but sometimes it did. Yeah, It does show a certain strength of character in Edward that he could be so forgiving and just get on with it. I mean, um, after the first 
1469 rebellion. Once he'd been freed by Warwick, Edward just acted like nothing had happened and was yeah. as friendly with Warwick before as as he had been previously. <laughs> it's just like he just wanted to get on with things and just carry on as normal. Yeah, he built bridges where he could. But I, but I think also he was prepared to give you a lot of rope. But if in the end he couldn't be reconciled with you, then I think he had a, a confidence, a personal confidence, not overconfidence, but a personal confidence that he would be able to deal with whatever came his way, that he mm. would be able to suppress any any threat. And, you know, you could say, well, that was his undoing at times, quite seriously un- his undoing. But on the other hand, again, I feel these are admirable qualities, mm. not things to put him in the pillory for. Yeah. So the tipping point for Warwick, do you think it was that Edward, I mean, Edward suddenly had all these in-laws, yeah. his wife's brothers and sisters, that he had to establish and the best way to do it was marriages. So suddenly he'd taken up all the free earls who were available for Elizabeth's sisters and all the heiresses for Elizabeth's brothers. Now Warwick had two daughters that he needed to marry. Had Edward taken the earls that Warwick would have married his daughters to or did Warwick always want his daughters to marry George and Richard? Edward's brothers. I don't think he always wanted them to marry into the royal family, but here I think Edward made made a significant mistake. I'm not sure that the marriages of both daughters is the issue. The marriage of the elder daughter, Isabel, I think, is the issue. And there was one prime candidate that she might have married, which was the Duke of Buckingham. Mm-hmm. Buckingham had extensive lands. He was you know, had a royal descent as well. Yep. He was the most eligible person available to Warwick for one of his daughters. And he thought himself throne-worthy as well, Buckingham, possibly ambitions. <laughs> yes, Buckingham had the hubris of Warwick, but without any ability of any sort, unfortunately. So there I think Edward made life difficult for Warwick because by marrying off Buckingham to one of the Woodville relatives, he closed off that possible avenue. Mm. You could take the view that Edward didn't want him to marry his daughters to Buckingham either on the grounds exactly as you just said uh, that Buckingham did have a claim to the throne yeah and did he want a man as powerful as Warwick that's the thing you see it's a double-edged sword Warwick's power mm. because it's a constant potential threat yeah and I think it used to be said that you know you could walk from one end of the country to the other from north to south and walk only on Warwick land because he had such extensive land mm. whether that's totally true or not I don't know but it demonstrates the point. Yeah, and Edward may have won the throne in battle himself, but it was the money yeah. and the men from Warwick that enabled him to do that. So if Warwick suddenly put that money and men behind Buckingham, would that mean that Edward lost the throne in favour of Buckingham and we'd have had Queen Isabel Neville? <laughs> well, we nearly we nearly did. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think the problem with Warwick's heirs, obviously he had no sons, he only had the two daughters and the, the, as I say, the marriage of the elder one was uh, significant, although obviously as heiresses, Warwick's lands, as we've said, which were extensive, might well be divided between the two daughters as heiresses anyway. So both of them were were huge marriage prizes for anyone. Mm. And Warwick didn't want to marry them just to anybody. The trouble was, Edward IV flatly refused to let those girls marry his brothers. Yeah. Was he right or was he wrong? That is the thing. Was it because of Warwick or was it because he wanted to marry the brothers into... Did he want to get them foreign princesses? Yeah. I mean, he'd already married off all the eligible women in England to the Woodville brothers, so there wasn't much other option for them. Yeah, I think the important thing to remember is that certainly Richard was not very old in the first half of the reign anyway, Mm. and that didn't mean he couldn't marry, of course. George was a bit older, but it was not as if they'd missed the boat at that point. There was no rush for Edward to marry them off. Yeah. And of course, the added problem in the late 60s is that Edward had no sons. He was in the same situation as Warwick. He had two daughters. Yeah, I was just going to say that. George was the heir presumptive. That had to be seriously thought about who he married because he may eventually be king. Yeah, absolutely. At that point, nobody could say that, that Edward would have a son. So, you know, George... George was enormously important and Richard to a lesser extent at that point, but still uh, he, he was a spare, a spare, spare, as it were. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see both sides of it. I, I, I see why Edward did not want Warwick's daughter to marry his, his brothers, because he would have felt that 
Well, let's put it another way. Not only had Edward showered lands and titles and rewards on Warwick, but he also had to do that with Clarence because George Duke of Clarence was the heir presumptive. He had to have status Mm. which matched that. So Clarence was also given extensive lands before 1469. Being Clarence, he wasn't at all satisfied with Mm. with his lot. But, you know, it's not as if, if you think about, if Edward marries off his brother George, Duke of Clarence, to Isabel Neville, their children sort of inherit most of the earth, really. <laughs> I mean, their, their <laughs> land holdings will be enormous. He, he would be creating for his successor, if he has one, a bigger problem than he's got. Yeah, and he's already got a big problem. But basically, Warwick is just, like you say, he's so overmighty, not just in any political power, because he can curb, Edward can curb his political power, but it's the money and the resources that he can call on throughout England. Like you say, it's not just a small power base in the Midlands or in the South or in the Southwest or something. He's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I think, in a sense, uh, Warwick is Edward's Achilles heel because Mm. Edward's desire to conciliate and and try to do a deal and sort everything out without bloodshed Mm. really comes a cropper when, when we look at what Warwick does because of everybody in England, Warwick is the only one with sufficient power and resources to challenge the crown. And by sidelining Warwick to an extent, and let's not pretend that he he shuts him out of government because he doesn't. He's still very centrally involved in government, as is George Duke of Clarence. But these new people are brought in, aren't they? And that seems to be what puts his nose out of joint. Earl Rivers, Elizabeth Woodville's dad, um, Herbert. Yeah, these are the, those are the two main ones. But if you look at, it's not so much their their influence, though. Clearly, Earl Rivers did have considerable influence. But William Herbert is a different one. William Herbert was raised up by Edward in gratitude for his support, Mm. but mainly because I think Edward needed a team, if you like. He needed a team batting for him, not Warwick. And I think that's what he did, isn't it? And that's why he did it with the Woodbills. There's a lot of argument. I read years ago, I think it was David Baldwin's book on Elizabeth Woodville that actually changed the viewpoint a little because originally it was all Elizabeth Woodville getting all these marriages for her family and Baldwin argued that actually it was Edward IV creating this new nobility who owed everything to Edward so would be loyal to Edward and not have their own names because it was Edward who raised them up so it was Edward they need to back yeah absolutely and I think that's totally the case there's there's so much rubbish talked about the Woodvilles in general and Elizabeth Woodville in particular Mm. and one of those bits of rubbish is that this was all her impetus that brought about that those marriages and alliances Edward was trying to create as you just said a group of nobles who would support him Mm. and William Herbert was one of those the problem was and if you look at all the problems in the end with Warwick come down to land Mm. and William Herbert was giving given considerable land holdings in the Welsh borders Yes, because he was created Earl of Pembroke wasn't he he was yeah yeah he was created Earl of Pembroke and he also had significant authority Mm. as well as his land in that area and this was an area that Warwick had held lands in himself and he regarded William Herbert as an upstart who was on a different plane from him. And the same with Earl Rivers, really. He he disliked having other people who might be raised up to threaten his interests, Mm. not his power overall, but just individual interests anywhere in the country. He would fight his corner like every other landowner, but unfortunately he was more able to fight than most. So I think there is this growing number of nobles who owe nothing to Warwick and everything to Edward, as you said, and Warwick resents that. So it's not just about Edward's marriage. I think that was a blow. He did regard it as a slap in the face. And I think everybody at court would have seen it as a slap in the face. I think Edward thought he could talk his way out of it. He thought he could talk his way out of most things. <laughs> and and it did leave a bit of a mark on Warwick, I think. But it wasn't just that. It was it was the it was the fact that Warwick couldn't see a future for the Neville family. He was a member of a dynasty and he couldn't see how he was to promote that family in the next generation. And for every nobleman, that was the critical issue. Yeah. 
National politics was one thing, but family was everything to the nobles. And he couldn't see a future. Mm. He couldn't see how, with the marriages denied to him, he couldn't see how he could take the Neville family forward through his daughters. And that, of course, led him to uh, to create problems. <laughs> I mean, it's a big step, though, going from putting a Yorkist on the throne, Edward of York, Edward IV, and helping to put this man on the throne, and then also helping to bring him down and put Henry VI back on the throne to go from York to Lancaster. Well, I think, I mean, to be fair... <laughs> His first choice was another Yorkie. Yeah. Probably as early as 1467 or 14, certainly 1468, he was planning to marry his daughter Isabel to George Duke of Clarence no matter what, no matter what the king mm. said. He was already negotiating with the Pope for a papal dispensation because they were related. Yeah. And he was going to press home that marriage come hell or high water. Mm. And that that's what happens essentially in 1469. And he knows Edward has forbidden it. He knows this is going to be yeah. not just a bone of contention, but, but this is likely to be a critical difference between the two men. Mm. But Warwick is not impetuous. Warwick's a planner. He's been negotiating with the Pope, as I said, for the marriage. But also, he has been raising men in the north. He's been causing chaos in the north as well. He's raised an army. Yes. So he was behind those rebellions of Robin of Reesdale. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there were there were many. I mean, that's one of the most confused things in the entire 15th century. Who led the rebellions and what they were about and so on. There were rebellions and the impetus for the biggest of them certainly came from Warwick. Mm. And he, he had a manifesto. <laughs> he had a manifesto, which I think he issued from Calais after he'd uh, gone to Calais and, and seen the marriage of his daughter to George Duke of Clarence. And then he came to England and suddenly we have a battle. Mm. Edgecote in July 1469 was where Warwick showed his true colours. He didn't actually fight in the battle. He was on his way to it, mm. but in the end he didn't need to because, uh, because Edward's newly raised up nobleman William Herbert and... The Earl of Devon. The Earl of Devon. Humphrey Stafford, was it? Yes, that's right. Humphrey Stafford, Earl of Devon. They they did not get on very well, shall we say. And <laughs> they managed to turn a position of considerable strength into total chaos. Yeah, they split the army, didn't they? They were marching separately. Yeah, well, they started off separately. So one got caught and the other one thought, actually, I'm not going to help him. <laughs> yeah, I think Humphrey Stafford was having his breakfast while uh, w William... Uh, Herbert was fighting for his life. Mm. And when half-heartedly Stafford did send his army, which was predominantly archers, so actually very, very useful troops, uh, which, which Herbert didn't have many archers. When he eventually sent them, they arrived too late basically to make any difference, so they, they beetled off home again. Mm. It didn't save Humphrey Stafford because he, like Herbert, were, was executed and later, of course, Earl Rivers. Yeah. So this was a this was a coup d'état. This was a coup d'état mm. using violent means. And he knew there was no way back from that, didn't he? Warwick, he knew he had to go for Henry the Sixth then because he just executed the king's father-in-law. There was no way back from that. There was no way back as far as Elizabeth Woodville was concerned. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, Edward, you never know with Edward. I, I, I still think it was possible, even though Edward must have been absolutely gutted by what had happened. The, the, the funny thing is, it's almost funny, hilarious, is that in the autumn of 1469, having captured the king, Warwick had to let him go mm. because Warwick realised he had no authority. He had no authority to rule. Yeah, because he couldn't actually do anything. There was still a king. The king was alive and he had to let him go because mm. things needed to be done. Government needed to carry on. He was isolated. Those unrest wasn't then. He needed Edward to sign commissions of array. And of course, Edward won't do it because he's in prison. He doesn't have to do it. <laughs> no, that's right. Now, the critical thing is this. He was in Warwick's hand. Warwick could have killed him and made George Duke of Clarence king. Yeah. The problem was he was isolated. None of the other major nobles were prepared to support him. No. At that point. And actually, anyone in their right mind would not have wanted George as king rather than Edward. It might be an idea for the benefit of any listeners who are not too familiar with the roller coaster events of 1470 to lay out the, the pivotal moments. Warwick must have known that only by replacing Edward with Clarence, who was still, remember, Edward's heir, only by replacing Edward with Clarence could he be really secure. In March 1470, he tried again and failed. 
even his brother John didn't support him. So Warwick and Clarence were forced to collect their wives and flee to France. I was going to say, do you think by that point he'd also realised that backing George was the wrong yeah. move? And that if he had put George on the throne at that point, his situation would have probably been worse than it was under Edward because George was so unstable. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that the more Warwick got to know George, the less he yeah. liked, the less he respected him, certainly. So I think that may have been part of the reason. He obviously, killing a king was a big step mm. anyway. But if your second choice, your, your, your man in the wings, is George, Duke of Clarence, you'd want to think about it quite a few times <laughs> before you'd actually go that far. Yeah. So he was pretty isolated. As you say, though, I mean, Edward still carried on accepting that he would be loyal. Yeah, after his release. He which just... is remarkable in itself. I mean, that's ridiculous, really. Yeah, he just appeared. But I wonder if he just appeared to get on. He must have been watching out of the corner of his eye all the time, wondering what Warwick's next move was. <laughs> yeah, he was. You do wonder at times whether Edward was a bit thick or whether he was just very, very clever and so, yeah. so confident in his own ability. I think that's part of it. Yes. So effectively, in April 1470, Warwick was finished. But in the summer, he made a shock deal with the Lancastrian queen, Margaret of Anjou, and by September, he was back in England, not to crown Clarence, but to restore Henry VI to the throne. Edward was in the north, where Warwick trapped him, helped by his brother John's defection at a vital moment. And Edward and Richard fled to Burgundy, while his pregnant queen, Elizabeth, took sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. I think the one that gets me is that he actually expected John Neville um, to support him. And John was Richard's brother. He'd just had the, he'd been given the Earl of Earldom of Northumberland and held it for five years, but then had to give it back when Henry Percy came to terms with Edward. And yes, Edward found him alternative revenue and alternative titles. But at the same time, Richard was John's brother. So I think that he, Edward expected John to stay loyal after everything he'd piled on to him, I think was a bit of a, is a bit of naivety. I agree with that. And, and John Neville uh, was hard done by in a way. But again, if you think of it from a sort of real politic point of view, Henry Percy was, was basically, uh, had been locked up because he'd, he'd been a Lancastrian. And he was the the Earl of the Earl of Northumberland in terms of his inheritance. But he he lost that earldom to to John Neville. And Edward probably thought to himself, I need to balance the Nevilles again in the north. Yeah. This great Percy family who have controlled the Northeast for generation after generation. I've got to restore that. I've got to I've got to restore mm. the balance up there because the balance up there keeps me secure. And I think he was right. But at the same time, do you think he maybe ignored the fact that there's this there was this massive ongoing Neville Percy feud that had been going on for decades? I don't think he ignored it. I think he I think he decided it was a, it was a good thing that these two were watching each other yeah. and not bothered about unseating him. The <laughs> Neville's had no problems. They had no issues up to that point because mm. they had no rival in the north of a similar power once he puts the earl of mm. northumberland back henry percy suddenly again the nevilles have got someone they need to watch yeah and i think that was the right thing to do politically and he being edward he thought i'll persuade john neville he won't mind he'll be annoyed but yeah. i'll give him lots of lands elsewhere i'll, ra I'll raise him to a, to be a marquis and he'll be he'll be satisfied with that. Or if he isn't tough, <laughs> I think, you know, he'd made that decision. And of course, when he was unseated from the throne, John Neville didn't support him. He was right next to John Neville at the time. Mm. It was a, that's why it was a body blow, because yeah. he, could, he had nowhere to go without John Neville's support. At that yeah. particular instant, he, he had nowhere to go. He had to flee. Yeah. But again, comparing the two men, Warwick and Edward, it is interesting that Edward was always prepared to flee. He was always prepared to say, right, OK, let's take stock. Let's go away, rebuild, come back stronger. Yeah, live to fight another day. Yeah, exactly. Warwick was a do or die guy. Mm. You know, he was a sort of grand gesture, killed his own horse at Ferry mm. Bridge and said, I'm not I'm not moving. I'm here. I'm here till the end sort of thing 
You can't imagine Edward the Fourth doing that. No. You can imagine Edward the Fourth cutting a a dash in the battle and sort of leading by example, but you can't imagine him making grand gestures like that. Yeah, and the thing is, nobody doubts Edward's bravery. Yes, he did run to Flanders, but it wasn't. It was a strategic retreat. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't because he wasn't brave enough to face the fight. It was just he knew what's the point of fighting a fight you're going to lose. Yeah. Go away, regroup, and come back when you can win it. Yeah. And he could talk people round. He knew how to gain allies and who to talk to. And I mean, he certainly knew how to play on his brother George's fears and hopes in order to get him back on side when he did come back to England in 1471. Warwick came to realise, as we've said, that that George Duke of Clarence was not a person that you'd want to be king. Mm. And when they were forced to flee, when they they failed in in March 1470, they they failed to to take the throne Mm. and they went to Calais. And that was obviously terrible for all sorts of reasons, notably for Isabel Neville. But then he he ends up, Warwick ends up in France with the Duke of Clarence and it looks as if Warwick's finished, doesn't it really? I mean, he's, he's no allies to speak of in England. He may have some latent support, but he has no way forward. No. And he must have thought, well, Clarence is not the answer. But I don't think that Warwick instigated the conversation with Margaret of Anjou. No, I think it was the spider, wasn't it? Louis XI. Yeah, it was Louis XI who who saw an opportunity. Yeah. As you pointed out earlier, Edward IV had made an alliance with Burgundy, the enemy of France. And Louis saw an opportunity to destabilise the Yorkist regime. Mm by basically sort of poking a stick in the wasp's nest or whatever and seeing what happened. <laughs> so he brokered a deal between uh, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, and the previous queen, Margaret of Anjou. <laughs> now, this is another hilarious part of the Wars of the Roses, really. You, you couldn't imagine that happening. It was beyond the imagination of anyone at the time or since. Yeah, I don't think even Edward would have foreseen it. <laughs> you know, it's not on anybody's radar that Warwick and Margaret of Anjou would make this deal. We also have to remember that Henry VI is still alive in the Tower of London, forgotten by everybody, but suddenly he becomes he comes into play again. Well, I think not only was Margaret of Anjou the bottom of Warwick's list of potential allies, she wasn't on the list. Mm. She wasn't anywhere near the list. But he he came to realise this was desperation, wasn't it, really? He was a very powerful man or a man who had been very powerful, clinging to the last ditch effort. And he was prepared to do almost anything. Yeah, including make a deal with the woman who was in charge of the army that had executed his own father. It was uh, it was a hostility that came from both sides. I mean, she regarded Warwick as the the architect yeah. of her downfall. She hated him. She she blamed him for everything. Mm. And perhaps not surprisingly, when uh, when they met and he made his uh, apology on his knees for a quarter of an hour or so, she was not going to let him get away, get off lightly. <laughs> and she didn't trust him at all. And no. funnily enough, that lack of trust on Margaret's part. Was, was the main problem for Warwick in the end. Yeah, it's what caused the whole plan to fail. She was not prepared to commit to anything fully mm. until Warwick had taken England back. He wasn't going to go there. Her son wasn't going to go there. He was betrothed to Warwick's younger daughter, Anne. Uh, the marriage wasn't going to take place. Mm. Nothing was going to happen until Warwick had actually thrown Edward IV out. Mm. And that whole thing caused a major problem. I mean, Warwick had a coalition of allies who really didn't like each other very much because he had some ex-Yorkists, he had some Lancastrians, some who felt some loyalty, perhaps Henry VI still, but you wouldn't call them die-hard Lancastrians. He had a whole group of people who were disaffected. But didn't trust each other either. (laughs) No, not at all. This is after almost 20 years of intermittent warfare. So there were a lot of grudges behind the scenes as well, weren't there, where somebody had killed somebody's dad and or brother or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think um I think a lot of the personal feuds had sort of worked themselves out by 1470, but uh people who had lost huge amounts of land, the mm. Duke of Somerset, for example, the Beaufort family, and the Earl of Oxford, notably. Those two in particular 
Jasper Tudor, of course, who who was a la- another diehard Lancastrian. Yes. Those three, the Earl of Oxford, Jasper Tudor and the Duke of Somerset, those three were the mainstay of Margaret's support. And none of them trusted Warwick. Mm. None of them wanted to be in bed with Warwick, but they were forced to because of the circumstances. And it was for them as well as Warwick. Sometimes people forget this. It was their last hope as well. It wasn't just Warwick's on both sides. Everybody yes. felt it was this or nothing. But their divisions became pretty obvious mm. once Warwick had actually thrown Edward out. You could see Warwick as a tragic, almost a typical tragic mm. figure put up by his hubris and power into a situation where he got things badly wrong and suffered for it. I'm surprised Shakespeare didn't write a play about him, actually. <laughs> it would, Yeah, it would have been an interesting one, actually. I do wonder if he did just at any point decided to put his slippers on and put his feet up. <laughs> um, he'd have lived a long and happy and prosperous life. But he just always seemed to be searching for that little bit more power, a little bit more influence. And that was his downfall in the end, that he tried to put Henry VI on the throne. And he managed, he succeeded in getting Henry VI out of the tower, putting a nice gold cape on him and saying he's king again. <laughs> but like you say, he's there saying, Margaret, you need to come home and trying to shore up everything until she comes home with the son and heir who will re-establish the dynasty. And because she takes her time, Edward has time to come back to England, turn George, and then face Warwick all before Margaret's even set sail. By the time she lands, it's all over. Somehow, I'm not sure how, they all underestimated Edward. And this is a guy who, who... doesn't give up he may as we said earlier he may run away but only Mm. to regroup yeah and i think his energy his dynamism his decision making he just caught them all on the hop basically it shouldn't have happened really warwick was in a strong position although as we've said they were papering over some cracks in the in the alliance he was still in a very very strong position in uh, 1471 now edward comes back to the country he he gathers a fleet a small fleet he gets shipwrecked basically so again, it's against all odds that edward turns up in the north of england and claims that he has just come to claim his lands as Duke of mm. York, which in itself is a, is a surprising thing for him to say, but a very clever thing, of course, because he's saying, I'm loyal to Henry VI. I'm not going to seek the crown. I'm only here. I'm only here for the beer. I'm only here for my lands as Duke of York. It's funny that they say, because they say, you know, he followed Henry IV's example and said, I've just come back for my lands yeah. because that's what Henry yeah. IV did as Duke of Lancaster in 1399. He landed, at, I think it was the same place, wasn't it, as well? Ravenspur, yeah. And said, I've just come to claim my lands from Richard II. And then he claimed the throne. You do wonder why nobody thought, hold on a minute. (laughs) I've I've seen this before. I know what happens. It was a long time ago. It was about 80 (laughs) years earlier or whatever, was it? Yeah, but you see, one man could have stopped all that. The Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, recently restored by Edward as Earl of Northumberland, was in a position to crush Edward, to kill Edward. He, He could have ended the whole thing there Edward had a handful of men with him next to nobody and if the Earl of Northumberland had chosen to oppose Edward that would have been the end of it but he didn't and this is where Edward's earlier diplomacy pays off because the Earl of Northumberland has doubts do I really want to strike down this guy who has restored me to my rightful position of power in the north? And if he is only coming as Edward Duke of York, well, let's see what happens. Well, of course, let's see what happens is that it all kicks off. And as Edward moves south, because, of course, as I said earlier, Edward had very little support personally mm. in the north of England. But in the Midlands, he had a lot of support. And once he gets to the Midlands, game on. And you've got these two growing armies, Warwick's army and Edward's army, shuffling around each other in the Midlands. And you've got George, Duke of Clarence. Now, George has no future under Warwick because Warwick has already done a deal to restore Henry VI and then his son, Edward of Westminster. And Warwick's happy with that because his daughter gets the throne. He's not bothered which daughter. Absolutely. (laughs) But this time it would be Anne who's married to Edward of Westminster. So she's going to get a throne eventually. So Warwick's happy. Yeah, but Clarence has got nothing. And the, the thing that people often forget as well is this isn't happening in a vacuum. For months, 
deaths. His mother, Cecily Neville, his, his brother, Richard, his sisters have been nagging at George Duke of Clarence and saying, look, come back to the fold. Join your brothers again. Mm. This is what you need to do. And so on and so on and so on. Till the end, George says to himself, well, I'll be better off back with my mm. brothers than with Warwick. There's no future for me with Warwick. And George is a very powerful man. Again, that's often overlooked. He's powerful in terms of massive land holdings in the West and Southwest and South of England, and therefore manpower and resources. Mm. So when he suddenly changes sides, and you have the three York brothers together, their army is a match for Warwick's in terms of numbers. Yeah. But you don't have a battle then. You don't have a battle because both of them, Edward and Warwick, are sort of tiptoeing about. Each one desperate not to make a, a fatal error and so while they're doing that there are their huge armies are consuming food and resources they can't stay as they are forever and this is where as i say edward's decisiveness is critical mm. edward says right we're going to make for london and he and his force makes a dash down the north road to london and it's that which is the most significant thing he does really because he gets to London. If he can get to London before Warwick, he has the seat of government and he also has possession once again of Henry VI. Mm. By getting to London first, he has all the resources of London and he has Henry VI in his pocket. So Warwick is then put in a position where he has to pursue Edward and the rest is, as they say, history. But not, not a foregone conclusion by any means. The Battle of Barnet is undoubtedly the best example of the fog of war that there's ever been. <laughs> yes, like a carry-on film. <laughs> I mean, we could spend all day talking about the Battle of Barnet. Basically, what was it? The Lancastrians mistook the Oxford star for Edward the Fourth's son in splendour and started attacking Oxford's own men. <laughs> That happened as a result of how the armies lined up. Basically, Warwick had got as far as Barnet and Edward had raced out of London. The energy of the man at that age in his youth is, is unrivaled. Mm. So he gets his army north as fast as he can because he doesn't want Warwick at the gates of London. So he races out and his army is moving as fast as it mm. possibly can. And it's the end of the day and it's dark. And so Edward says, right, I want you to get as close to the enemy as you can and stop there. So they do. They get really, really cl closer than you would normally get to your rival's battle line. Mm. And they camp there for the night. And Edward says they're not to make any noise so that Warwick's army don't know how close they are. But <laughs> what they've done is they, because it's dark, they've lined up out of alignment with Warwick's army. So Edward's right flank extends beyond Warwick's left flank and Warwick's right flank extends beyond Edward's left flank. And so the armies are misaligned, but they don't know that. Mm. And you think, well, obviously at dawn, they're going to know that. It's going to be blindingly obvious. But it isn't because all night mm. Warwick has been using his superior artillery to pound the living daylights out of Edward's army. Or rather, he's not because they're so close the cannons mostly fire over their head. So all you've got in the morning is a lot of smoke combined with a lot of fog. Yeah, and a lot of men who haven't had any sleep. <laughs> yes, but nobody knows where anybody else is. They know they're ahead of them. That's all they know. Mm -hmm. So as you as you say, uh, Oxford on the, um, the right flank of Warwick's army, very good general, very good... Uh, tactician he sweeps aside that the left flank of edward's army so successfully that his his men rush off into into barnet mm. and enjoy the, the flesh pots of barnet such as they were word even gets to london that warwick has won yeah great news unfortunately what had enabled them to to push edward back on the left flank also enabled edward's army to push warwick's army back on his right flank. So they sort of turn round, the battlefield turns round. Yeah. And because Oxford's men are reduced in number, and because of the fog, as you rightly say, Oxford's heraldic symbol was a star, and it is mistaken by other Lancastrians for Edward IV's sun in splendour. And in a foggy day, I'm not sure there's much difference in the look of a star and the sun. Apparently there wasn't. So <laughs> they get... They get chaotic and disorganised as a result. But whilst that is crucially mm. important, it's not the only reason that uh, Warwick loses the battle. It's largely, I think, because of that misalignment and because his cannon, which he ex expects to yeah. decimate Edward's army, are, are almost useless. Ineffective. Yeah. 
And again, this is where Margaret's mistrust of Warwick is shown to be a fatal flaw. Had she been in England, this wouldn't have happened. Mm. They would have combined their forces. And even if Edward had come back, even if he had raised an army, he would have been badly outnumbered, seriously outnumbered. Yeah. Probably would have lost. Yeah. But because Margaret, Margaret's still in France. Mm. And she only lands in England on the day of the Battle of Barnet, when Warwick is being killed. And how many people in England didn't support Warwick because Margaret wasn't there? If Margaret had been there with Warwick, she might have actually gained more support in England. Well, she managed to raise an army when she got there. Yeah. She didn't bring an army with her. Everybody knew Henry VI was the king. Yeah. Yes, Edward's been playing king for 10 years, but if it came down to it, when it came down to it, between Edward and Henry... A lot of people would have seen Henry as the rightful king and Margaret as just trying to get the throne back for her husband and her son. Well, I think the son is the critical bit because even then, uh, Elizabeth uh, gave birth to a son, I think in 1470, uh, when she was in sanctuary. It was whilst Edward was in Burgundy. Yeah, Yeah. and Edward only knew that, I think, or only sort of met them when he went to London, as I said earlier, when he chased to London. But if Margaret had been in England with her son, the future, if you like, you have a choice then of an adult heir and a baby Mm. as the future of the country. And I think that would have been a powerful element as well in persuading some people that really the best bet would be to support Henry VI and his son, Edward. There'd be a a continuation of the dynasty. It'd be much more secure. Whereas this guy, Edward IV, yes, okay, been around for 10 years, but he only had a baby son. There was going to be no security, no stability for years to come. Yeah. Perhaps he was the wrong choice. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact she wasn't there was critical, absolutely critical. I can't see any way that even Edward, who, as we've said, is is, unrivaled on the battlefield. I can't see any way he could have won. I just can't see it. So they sort of played into his hands. Do you think it's appropriate that Warwick died on the battlefield, seeing as he'd spent a lot of his life on it? Would there have been, there wouldn't have been a way out for him anyway, would there? If he'd been, having lost the battle, if he'd been captured, Edward would have had no choice but to execute him. Yeah, I think I think if he was captured, he would have been executed. I don't think there's any doubt about that. <laughs> Edward, Edward was forgiving, but he wasn't that forgiving. Mm. But I mean, Warwick tried to flee. He tried to leave. He didn't stand like his brother did, John Neville. Mm. He stood there and took it and was killed. Warwick was, as it were, caught whilst trying to escape. So he did perhaps believe that he could you know, live to fight again. I think he would have been executed if he'd been uh, if he'd been caught. Yeah. But it was a culmination of a lot of bad decisions on Warwick's part. You see, I wonder whether he actually had a stronger hand with Margaret of Anjou than he imagined. Because if he'd said, well, if you don't come, I'm not going to bother. Yeah. If he'd um, called her bluff and said, look, we're either in this together or we're not in it at all, and and decided that he could only win with her. Mm. I think he probably thought he could win without her, but that was a mistake. Yeah. I suppose he thought if he, if he could win without her, that put him in a stronger position with her as well. Yeah. And he knew he had a lot of ground to reclaim in regard of Margaret ever trusting yes. him. And I suppose he thought that if he fought it on his own and won, that would go a long way to giving him credit because he must have wondered what she would do when he did win she'd still eventually sideline him he wouldn't be in any better position as he was with Edward IV in the end because she never trusted him no and of course as I said he's got three major enemies on her side yeah Uh, the Duke of Somerset the Beauforts weren't going to forgive Warwick for what had happened to their family nor was the Earl of Oxford Mm. John Devere Earl of Oxford was an absolutely antagonistic opponent of the Yorkist regime and Warwick was part of that regime to most So, I mean, it's interesting, uh, a little sidelight, I suppose, is when Edward approached London in 1471, the Duke of Somerset went to meet Margaret. Mm. He wasn't interested in trying to stop Edward from taking London. He's one of her key allies, one of the key allies, yet he just goes down to meet Margaret because Margaret is the important thing to him. Warwick is not important. And nor really is Henry VI, Mm. because they all know Henry VI is really just going to be a puppet either way. The real power is going to 
still ally with the Prince of Wales with Edward of Westminster. Yes. So if you're the Duke of Somerset, you're thinking, I know where my my bread's buttered. I'm going to go down and make sure I'm I'm in with Margaret and the and the young prince because that is the future. Warwick will be gone. Yes. I'm pretty sure, as you say, that he would be sidelined. Probably more brutal than sidelined. <laughs> I think they'd get rid of him. I just don't think there was forgiveness there. No. He was a tool for them for the moment. But there was no way they were all going to allow him back in and give him power when he was the one who pushed them out. Warwick is is an enig- enigmatic sort of figure, but I do think overall that that he isn't much of a hero. He's a man in the end who who probably was just constantly disappointed. Yeah, he seems to have not actually known what he wanted. He couldn't be king because there were so many people, you know, he wasn't in line for the throne. So he was never going to be king. So what did he want? He want, Did he want to be the power behind the throne? In which case, you know, you put a young lad of 18 on the throne. That's not going to happen, is it? He's going to find his own way unless he's Henry III and wants 10 years of peace and not having to bother about things before he decides to reign. You've got an 18-year-old on the throne. He's going to... We all know what teenagers are like. They know what they want to do and that's it. You're not going to dissuade them. It's <laughs> their rules are the highway. So <laughs> I think one thing one interesting aspect of it to go back to, we haven't talked about this because it's not really part of what we set out to, to talk about, but if you go back to 1460, when Richard Duke of York and the Nevilles were prominent and they they forced Henry VI really to sign the Act of Accord or agree in Parliament to the Act of Accord, which meant that he carried on as king and Richard Duke of York would succeed him and he disinherited his uh, young son Edward. So that agreement was hammered out by the lords to reach some kind of compromise which would end the hostilities. But of course, as we know, Margaret uh, didn't really like that idea. But not only that, the, one of the interesting things I came across was that when the Duke of York, in, if you if you recall, before the Act of Accord, the Duke of York had turned up at Westminster as if he was going to be crowned. Mm. He put his hand upon the throne. He gave everyone the impression that he wanted at that point to be king. The yeah. Act of Accord, in a way, was not to save Richard, but to save Henry. Yeah. And it's quite clear from what we know that one of those who was most surprised mm. by Richard Duke of York's attitude was Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. He was surprised that York intended the throne. Now, what that tells you is, like many nobles, he expected that the line of succession would be adhered to yeah. and that, yes, they hammered out this compromise, but before that, it appeared that that, that Richard Duke of York was actually angling for the throne and disinheriting the existing king. It tells you something about Warwick, I think, that that surprised him and probably worried him mm. because in the end, he had to sort of hitch his wagon to the Yorkist kings and he ended mm. up being someone who had overthrown a king. And I'm not sure that sat lightly with him in 1461 and 2. I think he, he felt, well, you know, this is where I am, but ideally I didn't really want this to happen. I didn't really want us to have a rebellion to put a Yorkist king on the throne. I wanted to get rid of my rival nobles. I wanted to be powerful under the king, but I didn't necessarily want a Yorkist king. Mm. There is some consistency there in that, that maybe Warwick felt the whole Yorkist experiment was a mistake. Yeah. And that perhaps he should try to restore the, the old succession. Ah, so he was writing a wrong. I mean, he was clearly doing everything for personal reasons <laughs> and for his family's success. But what I'm saying is that there, were, there may have been a reluctance to go to war against Henry in the first place. Yes. But, you know, I guess uh, we'll never know for certain his motives. But whatever they were... He failed. <laughs> yes. I think the thing is, with Edward and Warwick, which that's what this discussion seems to have turned into, the relationship between Edward and Warwick, mm. all relationships change over time. And I think some people have a tendency when looking at history to look at the finished product and say, oh, it was always like that, without actually looking at the twists and turns that got them there. And it, it isn't a straight road. There's all these decisions of various points where it could have turned out so differently. I think the young Edward, when he was in his teens, probably idolised his cousin, Richard Neville. I think he he was his mate. Mm. You know, they used to sort of knock about a lot. He was certainly impressed by Warwick. And I think Warwick regarded him as his protégé, not necessarily a future king, but if you know, obviously a future powerful man. But then in 1461, when 
when when when Edward had had really almost single-handedly made himself king, the relationship changed because Warwick realized, well, yeah, hang on a minute, this, this, here's this boy that used to you know, hang on my coattails, who's now mm-hmm. ruling the roost, who's now, now taking charge, and it's yeah, and it, it must have been quite difficult to accept. Yes, and I think that maybe may have been the root of it with Warwick actually that he wasn't the role model anymore, and he'd seen himself as the guiding hand for Edward, and suddenly Edward didn't need him, and it was like, oh, what do I do now then? <laughs> How do I remain relevant? Yeah, I think whenever you, when you look at any of the rebellions in the medieval period against against an established king or a new king, it's all about a feeling of desperation. It's all all about, or mostly, it's about I can't see another way out yes. of this. And I think Warwick is the archetypal example of that. He couldn't see another way out of the situation he was in, mm. and he couldn't he couldn't put up with that. So that's the other thing, as you I think said earlier, he wasn't prepared to put his slippers on and retire. No. He couldn't see how he existed in a world totally dominated by others yeah yeah i think that's it and it's all these little things building up woodville's gaining power edward ignoring his advice for certain things his foreign policy not being adhered to but he still had all these abilities and he could still make peace with the scots he could still raise a vast army and he still had all these resources available but his potential wasn't being used no and and as you said i mean short of making himself king which he probably wasn't able to do anyway Mm. where else did he have to go i think edward saw him as a very important counselor a very important advisor and there was no problem with that warwick saw himself as the preeminent advisor to the king and the wife of the king and her father and the in-laws threatened that and i think sometimes you know rebellions occur because you're rebelling against incompetence Mm. but earl rivers wasn't incompetent his son elizabeth woodville's brother anthony rivers was by no means incompetent these were effective people. William Herbert was an effective nobleman. But that made it worse because Warwick therefore wasn't needed as much. He did. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He couldn't he couldn't really put up with that tragic figure i think yes very yeah it it is a sad tale when you look at it and the way the relationship broke down with edward but it's the way of the world isn't it children grow up and spread their wings and find their own way and it doesn't necessarily follow with what you had planned for them and obviously warwick had different plans for edward than edward had for edward history has also affected the way in which we look at Warwick in the 21st century because mm. the whole kingmaker name is a nonsense but it is stuck yeah it's very misleading it's it's totally misleading he didn't make anybody king really you could argue that if he did make anyone king they weren't king for long mm. so it's it's a misnomer he shouldn't be called that but he is identified that way and we're sort of stuck with it because at least everyone knows who, who he is yeah but he was more often than not he failed to achieve what he wanted to and i think more often than not edward the fourth succeeded in achieving what he wanted to uh, if you compare what they achieved warwick's is a destructive legacy whereas edward's is a constructive legacy yes yeah so history has been I think probably kinder to Warwick than he deserves and more unkind to Edward than he deserves. <laughs> yeah, because Edward is, tends to be judged on his death yes, rather than what he did during his life. But he, it's his fault he died too young, you see. <laughs> yes, well, we won't get into his brother, but his other brother. <laughs> But uh, yes, yeah, it's a fascinating relationship. It's probably the key relationship of the whole Walls of the Roses. Yeah, and it's been brilliant exploring it. It's interesting to actually look into it deeper than you probably would just reading a book about it because we've focused on Edward and Warwick and their relationship. Yeah, it's been fascinating. The tendency these days is, is short sound bites or Facebook bites and people in historical personages are, are dismissed in a few lines and summed up in a few lines as indeed our present day people uh, on Twitter and Facebook and so on. If we've learned anything from history it's that things are always a bit more complicated than they appear. Mm. It's not black and white. No, no it never is and there's no nobody's all good and nobody's all bad it's all shades of gray elizabeth gray (laughs) (laughs) well i think that's a great place to leave it today thanks very much derek i've learned an awful lot me too yeah (laughs) thanks everybody for listening next time we've got anna belfridge joining us to talk about edward the first and eleanor of castile 
and their relationship. So that should be quite interesting. And, and a little different from what we've been doing today. Yeah, <laughs> nice change. So I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burke. So I hope you've enjoyed the podcast and that you'll join us again soon.